to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast with the Caspian Post, with me, Mark Elliott. Hello and welcome once again to the Caspian Podcast with me, Mark Elliott. Today I have with me Alex Vatanka. Um, Alex is a fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, he's born in Iran, uh, then went to Denmark, later to Cambridge, where he was an analyst with Jane's, as I understand it, um, moved then to, to D.C. Um, back in 2006. Kind of interesting for me is that I gather, Alex, you left Iran in 1986, which is just about the first time I visited Iran. Is, is, have I got the dates right? Is, have, have, have I, am I saying all this correctly? No, no, you're right, Mark. Spring of 86, that's when, well, you say I left Iran. My parents decided to basically send me out at the time. I was 10 years old, so I didn't really have much of a say. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so I was in Iran the first time in 1984, and I... I mean, it was a very, very special time, just five years after the revolution. And uh, I've just been, this is this is your new book, I gather. So I haven't yet received my hard copy, but but flicking through stuff online, I, one of the things I, I love and I haven't seen in many other books is you mentioned that Talagani was was very much loved by the people at, at, in the beginning of the revolution. Now, Talagani was, was another Ayatollah, I gather, or another cleric, but very much more in term, uh, into a sort of democratic situation. Now, I'd like, can you tell people about Talagani? Because I feel he's one of the characters from Iran that's got completely lost in the story. But when I was there in 1984, wherever I went, the pictures I saw were Talagani and right. with a little Khomeini. Um, <laughs> people told me, now again, this is what I'd like you to, so people told me then that they believed he'd been somewhat suicided or made to disappear um some said it was asthma some people said it was heart attacks but he he was he was seen in tehran and then a few days later he was dead now right. i know this is a this is a funny way to kick off but what do we know of these stories well thanks mark look uh thanks for plugging the book i appreciate that it just came out this week so i hope people will pick it up and will enjoy it it's uh, you know, I'm trying to be a fly on the wall and tell a story. It's not an academic book. It, it touches on a lot of uh, serious subjects in terms of domestic politics, foreign policy, but it's told through the eyes of people who are participants. So uh, in that sense, I, I think it hopefully will aim for a general audience who are interested in Iran, what Iran does today and how Iran ended up being where it is today over the last 42 years. But Mark, back to your question about um, Ayatollah Talagani. So Talagani was, you know, if you will, today he's known as the leftist cleric. Uh, you know, he, he, he was uh, to the left of many of the people who became the dominant actors in the Islamic Republic, like Ayatollah Khomeini, present-day Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, and people like uh, Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani. Talagani was a, I mean, you know, we, we can debate this for, for a long time. Was he a people's cleric? Uh, that's how his supporters want him to be sort of remembered as. Uh, and remember, he died uh, uh, in you know late 1979. He he died, if I remember right, in October of 1979. So before Iran really took a turn for the worst. I mean, mm -hmm. the hostage crisis when the Ayatollahs 
sanctioned the seizing of the uh, U.S. embassy. That happened in November of 1979. And can we just, for people who don't know the Iranian history, let's just remind them, it, 1979 was the year of the Islamic Revolution where, where the Shah's regime was overthrown and, and it all changed. Yes. And, and actually, Mark, you put on, your finger on something that is to this day contested. Was it the Islamic revolution or was it mm -hmm. just the Iranian revolution where the Islamists hijacked it afterwards? Supporters of Ayatollah Talagani today will tell you they had no idea that once the Shah was removed, Khomeini and his people will, would install this thing called the supreme leadership. What mm -hmm. on earth is a supreme leadership? We got rid of the Shah to have a democracy and Talagani's supporters. And, you know, we don't really know where Talagani would have sort of politically wandered into had he lived. Um, uh, but his supporters today would claim that he would have stood up to Khomeini, that he was against the idea of a supreme leadership, that that might have been one of the reasons he suddenly had a heart attack. Mm. Uh, his death is suspicious. There's no doubt about it. You read it in the book how that part of the Tehran, the neighborhood he lived in, Suddenly, that the night he died, power went off. Yes. His bodyguard mysteriously was beaten up and had a broken leg, couldn't be there to protect the Ayatollah. The last person to see the Ayatollah Talagani alive was a Soviet ambassador. A lot of interesting nuggets come together that make people suspicious about how and why the timing behind Talagani's death. Well, I, I remember myself very, very clearly being quite surprised because as is so often the case about Iran, uh, what you hear here at home very rarely fits with what you actually see or hear on the ground. And it was my first trip. I, I, I went extremely naively, as a, just as a backpacker coming back from hiking in, the, in Pakistan in the mountains. So I, I had a, a week or so in Iran, and I was astonished. Now, a lot of people told me back then, um, we really don't like Khomeini, but we can tell you we don't like it like Khomeini, whereas under the Shah, the Savak would have had them um, just for saying they didn't like the Shah. Again, this is just what I heard um, as a traveller. Does that fit with how uh, Iranians really felt, or is that just the group of people I happened to meet? I mean, look, once Khomeini returned to Iran in Feb February 1979, having been in exile since the mid-60s, for a, you know about a six-month time or so, there was free-for-all. Uh, there was, you know, expression of uh, various political views. You had the Marxist, you had the Maoist, you had so mm -hmm. what we call social democrats, you had moderate Islamists, you had hardline Islamists, and then you had the clergy and all. So you had uh, lots of different groups. And there was a fight uh, uh, among these factions for ideas. End of the day, the ones who were man uh, managed to get the guns from the bar uh, barracks, <laughs> they were the ones who prevailed. Uh, and so you, you mm. could have you said in spring of 1979, even summer of 1979. I don't think this, this man, Ayatollah Khomeini, should rule over Iran like a new despot, if you will. And you might have gotten away with it. You could not have said that in two years later. Certainly not when you were there in 84, saying anything against uh, Khomeini would have landed you in prison cell. Maybe not a British backpacker coming out of Pakistan, mm -hmm. but a local Iranian individual saying that would have been in deep trouble. Because by 84, that's actually the darkest period in many ways, the early 80s. Mm -hmm. That's when they really tighten the grip. That's when any dissent is crushed. The country's at war with Saddam Hussein. Anybody who's like saying anything against the regime is yeah. Well, I, I, I do remember one of the strangest things that happened to me. I, my first day in Tehran, I wandered 
completely aimlessly with my Lonely Planet book into a central area. And I turned a corner and ran into a, a, about a million people all dressed in black with Death to America. Um, it was, I think it was the anniversary of the, the storming of the uh, US um, embassy. But what was very interesting was when I asked people, what, you know, well, for a start, people said, oh, come and join us. I said, I, and they asked me, are you American? I said, well, I'm British. Oh, that's a shame. We like Americans. I was like, that's kind of interesting. And they said, oh, well, you know, um, well, we, 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 we hate America, but we like Americans. Oh, and besides, and the other, the funny thing was, you said, um, coming to demonstrations is the only time we get to meet women. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Sense of priorities. <laughs> but, but that takes us to the other bit that, that interests me very greatly, which is the story we tell about the storming of, uh, uh, and the taking of the American hostages. Um, now, even with the, the, the film that they made, uh, the, the Hollywood film not so long ago, the question that never seems to be asked is why they took the hostages. Um, and one of the theories I've heard about that, um, again, locally and sort of rumours, is that um, the Shah had essentially transferred like a billion dollars from the Iranian economy into his own personal accounts by, by a series of different ways. And that part of uh, the problem was that the Iranian economy was collapsing and, and in a slump, somewhat naive reaction, the taking of the, of the embassy was some way of trying to get that money back. Now, is that a complete cock and bull story? Is there any truth in that? Or do we know another reason? Uh, Mark, I think it's much deeper than that. I think, you know, nobody knows in terms of the transfer of funds that Shah and his family and people uh, associated with the Shah took out of Iran. And really, that's not the story. And when you think about what happened in, on the 4th of November, 1979, uh, what Khomeini and his people, uh, and I, let me just start off by saying, I thought that was a horrendous decision they made. Mm. Uh, they were amateurs uh, in their political calculations. Uh, but they were driven by one, uh, um, one objective above all. Well, actually, let me say this, two objectives. One was to get the Americans to either return the Shah to Iran, because remember, he had just uh, been received by the Carter administration yeah. for medical treatment. Now, if you're sitting in Tehran, given Iranian history, not to mention what happened in 1953, the role of the British the Americans in the removal, removal of Prime Minister Mossadegh, you, you could be excused to think the Americans are up to something here. They're preparing to return to Shah and do, end this revolution before it consolidates. The other thing, uh, a factor that really I think, uh, you know, ex exactly what I try to explain in the book is to use the uh, taking of the embassy as a moment to radicalize the revolution, to get ah. rid of all those, uh, you know, uh, fellow travelers on this path that Khomeini and his people didn't like, the moderates, the so-called liberals, people like Bazar Ghan, a former prime minister, temporary prime minister. They get, got rid of him. Mark, you know who resigned uh, in the first uh, instance in, in protest against the taking of the U.S. embassy? It was the Iranian government. They resigned. Right. They resigned and they said, we had a revolution to have democracy here, not to start a fight with the Americans. So it was, uh, you know, it's all about power. And, you know, this death to America then took its own, you know, life. And here we are 42 years later. And they ask Iranians, what is death to America really about? And uh, they can't give you a, a convincing, in my estimation, I'm sure in their estimation, they're very convincing. 
But it's not about Iranian national interest. It has never been about Iranian national interest. You could have relations with the United States. You can have troubled relations with the United States. But the idea of not having relations with the United States, it just doesn't make sense when you have relations with everybody else on the planet. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, just very quickly for, for listeners that don't know, the, the 1953 incident that you're talking about is very, very important. And I, I, I think a lot of Iranians that you meet every time I go to Iran, people... This is like almost recent memory, 1953, the overthrow of Mossadegh. Um, and that's basically that was getting rid of the first truly dem democratic um, government of Iran on behalf of BP, as I understand it. That's, is that correct? Right. Look, again, I have to oversimplify for the sake of yes, the time of we have. I, I, yes, uh, I understand. We the, need to read the, books the British, the British didn't want to compromise with Prime Minister Mossadegh. They wanted to hang on to 95% of the revenue that came from Iranian oil. The, the British uh, were in possession of Iranian oil. And Mossadegh basically said, look, we're going to have a 50-50 split. It's, after all, Iranian oil. And the British had said, no, you know, you, you get 5% and be happy with it. So it, the oil industry was nationalized by Prime Minister Mossadegh. Uh, and then what the British did was to turn around to the Americans uh, and say, not that London was upset about loss of Iranian oil, but to say this Iranian prime minister, Mossadegh, he's a weak spot. He might give Iran away to Soviet communism. So ah. let's get rid of him. So that's how the British played it very cleverly. And that's at least how the Iranian narrative will tell you. What, I'm sure there's a British narrative behind this too. But I think mm -hmm. the consensus is that the British played up the communist threat in Iran in order to get rid of a guy who had hurt their commercial interest in the country. But your point, uh, Mark, which is really important, this notion that Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh was the first democratically elected prime minister. This is, this is not the case. He wasn't huh. elected. He was appointed by the Shah. All prime ministers were appointed by the Shah. So he was appointed by the Shah. He stood up to the Shah. He fell out with the Shah. The Shah removed him. And then you had the brawl. And, and we know the rest of it. But this notion that Iran in 1953 had a free a, 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 you know, set of elections and this guy won and the CIA went in and removed him. Again, it's, it's an oversimplification of what really happened. So often these things are, aren't they? <laughs> One of the things I, I, I mean, I love that there's so many conspiracy theories about Iran and so much we don't understand. It, I love to have the chance to at least put some of this stuff to you. I mean, so, so now let's go back to the revolution time. Um, now, what, visiting in the 90s and to, 2000s, especially the late 90s, um, one of the other things that a lot of people had were all kinds of conspiracy theories about George W. Bush. And, and again, one of the crazy things I was told quite often was that um, it was Bush's father's team who had originally helped to do, um, well, you, you know, this, this, this sort of the, the, the October surprise thing um, where mysteriously um, the, the hostages that we were talking about earlier were held until just after Reagan's election. Um, so, so the theory that, that um, people had was that because Bush's father already, as they put it, knew the Mullahs from, from them having helped in the Iran-Contra affair and, and having helped keep the uh, hostages long enough for Reagan to come to power, that somehow there was this secret deal going on is, um, so that the, the, the leader, uh, Khatami, who was trying to be a lot more pro 
Western and 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 uh, liberal within a certain range was 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 then immediately knocked down by being called a, an access of evil at the very time where the scene there should have been like um, some. Uh, coming together of the Western Iran, um, so yeah. that so that's a very complex way I've put it. But but ha- again, do, do any of these things have any truth to them? Is is there any of this known about? Right, you 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 raised a lot of interesting uh, uh, you know uh, moments in, in in Iranian history and U.S. Iranian relations going back to 1979. Look, I mean, lots of books. You just pointed out to the book by Gary Sick, who was involved. He was in the White House. He you know his books are wonderful. Uh, there are books and reports and oral histories available from the side of the Iranians who were involved in this. If you ask me right now, do we know exactly what happened, when, which date, and so on? And we still don't know. Mm. We still don't know. But I think it's pretty certain by now that, yes, the Reagan team were um, in, involved in talking to uh, people associated with the Khomeini uh, regime in Tehran. And uh, I don't think anybody will deny that. Uh, did did the uh, did the lesson of that cooperation then move on after Reagan was in the White House when George Bush the first became president? I see no evidence of that okay. certainly, but I think you know uh, it also raises the issue of how central the American question is uh, in when you're talking about Iranian politics that you know you might be talking about domestic Iranian politics and next thing you know the American issue is raised because it's always there it's the elephant in the room you talk about water security in Iran today within 10 minutes of having a conversation the American question U.S. sanctions and all the rest of it comes up it's such a big part of the everything that has that's going on politically around that American question yeah and 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 as you say, there are, there are so many issues to raise, and thank you for doing that. So this brings us neatly more into the into the present, and and in Vienna they're still, as I understand it, still talking about uh, yeah. ways in which possibly to lift the sanctions. Now, just just as a little another of my traveller stories um, about well, when when I was last there, um, it was at the point where sanctions had briefly been lifted. And I asked my friend in Tabriz, oh, I suppose this, is, this must be delightful for you. He said, it's good for the youngsters. But really, I think we need another 10 years of sanctions, and that would make us fully independent. And I was very much taken aback. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, he said, look, at the moment, you know, we've still got enough oil money to get by. But if they really squeeze us, then we'll have to make all of our industries self-sufficient well we and and i think people don't realize what an amazingly um, amazing variety there is in iran there's 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 everything from paddy fields to deserts mountains and ski resorts i mean it's an incredible place and it does it's one of the one of the few places that has everything and it then led me to believe maybe the reason that iran is so hated by the west or by the western politicians might be its very ability to be self-sustaining and be outside of the normal economic system? Again, a very long and complicated question, I'm afraid. No, I look, so basically, I think, you know, I hear what, what that individual in Tabriz told you, the idea of self-sufficiency. Who doesn't want to be self-sufficient? I'm talking to you We're from Washington, D.C. right now in 2021. People are talking about let's reduce reliance on imports from China. I mean, you know, what is self-sufficiency, though, in an interconnected world? in a world where you have Iran that sits on 15%, let me repeat that, 15% of all the world's oil and gas sits in Iran. Uh, 
and wow. you're sitting on all that. That's trillions of dollars, potentially of revenue in a, in a world at a time where people want to give up on oil and gas and move on to renewables. So you don't have time. You, if you want to make money out of that oil and gas, you better move. Otherwise, that's going to sit there in the ground and be of no use to f- future generations. So it's a nice, catchy slogan, self-sufficiency. But the other thing I tell you is if you had everything else in Iran being in order, then you could be self-sufficient. But you have a system that politically is, is dysfunctional. You have, I mean, the supreme leadership as a concept is proving to fail when it comes to issues like accountability, transparency, uh, and resulting in good management. All of those things are missing because the political system that you need to have in place to feed into an economic self-sufficient model isn't there. So basically, your friend in Tabriz is chasing this sort of a dream. It's a good dream to have, but it's a dream. For him to get to self-sufficiency, it's not about waiting another 10 years. It's to have major changes done to the political system of the country that would then allow for that independent economy to, to, be, to be born because they're not there yet. So what's happened instead of self-sufficiency, the foreign policy disastrous decisions of the regime have isolated the country. Less money, people are hungry, people are angry, and I'm not sure if they're just going to wait around and hope for the best because we see more and more Iranians being so upset that they're willing to come out in the streets and protest and you know butt heads with the security forces. That's not a good sign for for even the your the, the gentleman in Tabriz. Yes. Okay. Well, that's 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 a wonderful response. And um, so, um, what I'd like to know then, just as to 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 finish this up, because there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. But uh, what hopes do you have in the short term of of the Vienna meetings actually ending sanctions? Um, and again, with the elections coming up, will anything much change? Uh, I think it's June 2021 that's a new presidential election. Um, we, we sort of know that the presidential figure is somewhat powerless, I think, compared to the um, Revolutionary Guard and to the to the supreme leadership. But um, again, just to finish us up with, with those sort of topical yeah, things. No. So, Mark, I think you put, put, you know, put your finger on it again. Uh, Iranian presidency is more political theater than actual substance. I mean, the Iranian president right now or the ones who have come before him does not have the power to make important decisions single handedly. Now, he can shape decisions. He can knock on the door of the supreme leader and say, look, we really need to do something different here. But he needs to convince the supreme leader. He can't overwrite the supreme leader. If anybody can overwrite anyone, it's the supreme leader who is not elected by the people, who has had the same position since 1989. And he's not going to go anywhere probably June 18th when these elections happen. So, um, I mean, yes, the presidency can have some, you know, uh, responsibilities in the sense of the economy and, uh, you know, to some extent, how the uh, provinces are run and so on. But anything that the, the Supreme Leader or the Revolutionary Guards consider to be sensitive, they'll make sure the president and his government and ministers don't have a say over it. So that, that, that's sort of to, to give you a sense of how limited the presidency is in Iran. People shouldn't get too excited about major changes coming, good or bad. In terms of where we are in Vienna and the sanctions, look, um, I think there will be a deal because both sides really want a deal. So there will be a deal that's basically, it looks to be a revival of what's left of the JCPOA, the the Joint Comprehensive Agreement of 2015. Um, Is it going to be sustainable long term? That's the big question. And it's probably the answer to that is no. 
because I think for, for Iran to be able to put the sanctions regime behind it and get the Americans off their back, they need to broaden the conversation to other issues than just the nuclear program. It's, it's about what Iran does in the region. It's, it's to some extent, it's a missile program, it's position on Israel. There are a number of issues they need to be willing to compromise on. Now, being willing to talk to the US and Europeans and regional states like Saudi Arabia doesn't mean it's a one-way street, that it's all about Iran making concessions and getting nothing in return. I think if that's your view in Tehran, then you're mistaken. I think the region does want to talk to Iran and be willing to make concessions to the Iranians in return. And the Americans the same and the Europeans the same. But we just have to get to the position where you have enough political confidence to broaden the conversation. The Iranians, for good or bad, do not have that trust in the West. They believe, or certainly the Supreme Leader believes, whatever the Western powers tell you, it's a hoax. Really what they want is regime change. If they can't come in through the door, they'll try coming through the window, the chimney. They'll find a way for that regime change because basically what they want is the Iran they remember from before 1979. It's the Iran that you know mm. was a partner, never really tr- troubled anybody, did what we asked the Shah to do. We want somebody like that, uh, which is a misrepresentation, by the way, of the Shah. The Shah was very much an Iranian nationalist, believed in his country. You can, you can dislike his domestic politics, and he was certainly no Democrat, but the fact that the Shah loved Iran and wanted the best for his people, I don't think anybody can dispute that. So long long answer to your, to, to your question, Mark. I think there will probably be a deal. Nobody wants a war in the Middle East. The U.S. doesn't want war. There's a pandemic out here. There's all sorts of societal issues that President Biden needs to deal with. He doesn't want to go after a country of 83 million people just as they're packing up their bags next door in Afghanistan coming home. But for Iran's position, though, that doesn't mean anything. They still need to rethink their policies. They still need to think, what have we done wrong since 79? Why are we, why are we here? Why are we so beholden to a few countries like China? If China doesn't buy our oil anymore. We're desperate. What are we going to do? You know, those, those are types of decisions only the Iranian regime can make for their own people, for the future of that country. And sooner they do it, the better for, for the Iranian people. Well, what a fabulous answer. Thank you so much, uh, Alex Vitanka. As I say, your your book, um, from what little I've had to read of it so far, is absolutely gripping, and I can't wait for the, the full book to arrive in the post. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Alex, and you've been listening to the Caspian podcast uh, of the Caspian Post. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>